There is a longing within all of us for freedom, to get out in the open, away from the noise and fears and burdens that hold us captive, to breathe deeply and hear clearly, and to know that we are alive. Created in the image of God, our Creator God wants to meet with us, to bring us into greater freedom, to bring us to places where we can be still and know that He is God. As with all things worthwhile, there's a practice and a rhythm to this meeting. Transformation takes time, it takes effort, it is work, but the most enjoyable type of work. The practices of our spiritual life anchor us and carry us forward. They center us as we navigate the storms of life. When we journey into the great expanse of God's love for us, we are transformed by the rhythms of His grace. Good morning, C4. There we go. Good morning. So glad that you're here this morning. Again, we want to say good morning to many of you watching and listening online here in the province, around the world. We're glad you're here. So for you who come to this church regularly, you know what this shirt is signaling, right? I only wear it once a year. This is the once a year shirt. This is the signal that after I preach this sermon, I am leaving all of you for three weeks and I will not think much about you. I love you, but I'm out. I'm out. And this is the signal because, thank you, thank, thank you very much, um, uh, because I'm heading to the East Coast. So this is my East Coast shirt and I will eat much of lobster and we'll talk about all that stuff later. So this is week chapter, uh, this is week seven in our summer series on spiritual practices. And as we've been saying week after week, if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power that God has given the church to serve the church in the world, that is, if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed source of power by God, then the spiritual practices are the guaranteed place of meeting God. They are the vehicles that place us in the presence of God. They are the things that help us to continue to walk with God after we've met him exclusively and only through Jesus Christ, his son. Here's the definition we've been using all summer, whether you've been with us this whole run or this is your first time today. Here's the definition we found, another person wrote, the disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can, what's that word? Say it loud together transform us. Now, here is the conversation we have been having over the summer and is going to become especially poignant today. The word transform that is found here in this definition is found in the video you just saw is an easy word to say. But let me again remind all of us even what the definition of transformation is. It is alteration. It is change. It is revolution. It is renovation, it is makeover, it is conversion. 
See, why this series is so significant for us as a community is because our mission statement is that people of all ages would have the opportunity to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That also is easily preached and said, but what we are being invited into by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is that God himself would come into lives like ours and alter us and change us and cause revolution in our thinking and our ethics. He would renovate the way we we view the world. He'd make over the way we treat others, that he would not only convert us so we go to heaven, but he would convert us so we're different down here. This is a call to revolution. And the problem is we as human beings, especially as Canadian Westerners, we have an aversion to risk. And yet the spiritual practices are all about risk because you are putting yourself in the place to a thing, God himself, a being that you can never, ever control. This is an invitation to real transformation. This is an invitation to authentic Christian living. Jesus said these words. It's the core verse for this series out of Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Uh, take your, take my, my yoke upon you and, and learn from me. I, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, like I've preached time and time again and others have too. See, this invitation is not the removal of all yokes. This is an invitation for us to decide that we will not lead our lives, our family will not lead our lives, our culture will not lead our lives. We are declaring we want Jesus' yoke over us. What's a yoke? It's put on an animal to direct an animal in the way a farming community would do to plow fields. This is a declaration of willing slavery. Jesus says, why do you want me to be your master and not you anymore? Why would you trust me and nothing else? Because I am gentle all the time. I'm humble all the time. Oh, side note, I'm God and I'm perfect. Just saying, I'm going to be a better master than you ever would be. This, of course, is the place of great tension when people are viewing Christianity and wondering if they should embrace it. And for we who have said yes to Jesus as Savior and what? Lord, this is the wrestling point. The way to be transformed, the way to become fully devoted is to be like Jesus and be yoked to Jesus. And as we've been finding out in this series, part of the yoke is made up of these practices we're talking about. But don't miss the critical ideas we get going today. Jesus is Lord. Jesus owns all. If you're a Christian, then Jesus is not confined to influencing you from the sidelines of your life. He is at the center of us now and will lead us where he wants us to go. And here is the great standard that God is calling us into because he is love. He is saying you will know that the yoke of Christ is having function in your life. You will know the yoke of Christ is being more and more accepted. You will, as the video said, will start experiencing more and more freedom when Jesus has a authority over how you treat other people, power, how you use your body sexually, and how you use your money. Sex, money, and power is where the lordship of Jesus is demonstrated or revolted against. Now to find out what the practices are, and to find out what God is promising us, and what he's inviting us into, and commanding us to be, and what he's asking us to become, and what he's telling us to give up, and what to embrace... When we really are living under his gentle, humble, kind, yet directive lordship, we know we're doing it when we love 
and obey the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 describes what this is. For all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Here's the question as we get going today. What has more say in your life? Be honest. Do you have more say than the scriptures? Your experiences, your politics, your ethnicity, your gender, your views, your family, your friends. What has final say at the end of the day? This or you? Because this is an invitation to Christian transformation. And as I've demonstrated before, as Christians, we with joy, not out of duty, not out of religion, we with joy live like this. We are under his written word because his written word comes from the living word, Jesus. Now, we've been talking about a lot of disciplines today, and I just want to give a warning as I get going today. This is going to be at least a PG-13 sermon. At least. No, I'm quite serious. This is not, like, for effect. Um, this isn't a hashtag moment. Like, like, if you have kids in here, you need to know this is PG-13 and up. For you online, turn your computer off or something else. Okay. We've looked at confession so far as a church. We've looked at prayer going in two forms. We've done the Lord's Prayer and intercession, prayer that goes up and in and out. We've looked at simplicity. We've looked at worship. We've talked about fasting. And not only that, we've even talked about biblical secrecy. But today we're going to look at another critical spiritual practice that God is calling, by the way, all of us here and online to participate in. Today we're going to talk about chastity. Some of you are going, I have ringing in my ears. Did you say something? I'm sorry, did you just say the word chastity? Is that a thing anymore? Do people even do that? Is that a word we use? Or you're not going to start handing out chastity belts to all the single people here, right? No, breathe. It's okay if you're a guest. Don't get freaked out. But here's what we need to really understand this morning. We live in a sex-soaked culture. We live in a culture that is highly sexualized. Every culture has been. But because of the online reality, we can participate communally or individually in any flavor of anything we want. We cannot avoid sexuality. Actually, it's a good thing in most cases. But we cannot avoid temptation. We live in a sex-soaked culture that is obsessed and actually has elevated sexuality to a godlike form and has declared it a right. Now, most of us sitting here this morning have never probably heard the word chastity in years. Most of us who have grown up in the church have probably never heard a sermon on chastity unless it was in a youth group talking about abstinence and someone yelled at you and you really forgot most of that. But most of us have never considered that chastity is a spiritual discipline to be practiced by, ready, all Christians. Oh, let me say that again. Right. Chastity is a spiritual practice that we are all invited into to become more like Jesus. You who are single, you who are single again, and you who are married, all of us at points are called to engage in this practice joyfully. One person said, I'm not coming this week. I'm not into that. Well, guess what? Welcome. The fact is, what we need to think through this morning is when is this appropriate, when is it not appropriate, when is it abusive and religious, and when is it an absolute freeing thing? I love what Richard Foster wrote. This is so good. He said, in fact, when he's reflecting on our culture, what we call sexual needs aren't really needs at all, but they're wants. 
The body needs food, and the body needs air, and the body needs water. Without these things, the human life, well, it can't survive. But no one, no one, no one has died from the lack of sexual intercourse. You can laugh. It's true. Many people act. There's some young men and women going, oh, no, no, no. No one has died because they have not had sex. Many have actually lived quite a full and satisfying life without genital sex. He writes, oh, by the way, including Jesus. Sexual intercourse is a human want. It is not a human need. And the difference is very significant. Now, as we've done week after week, we always start with a common definition. So we're all on the same page as we walk through this series and also in this message. So here's a great definition I found written by another on the spiritual practice or discipline of chastity. It says, chastity is purposely turning away for a time from dwelling upon or engaging in the sexual dimension of our relationship with others, even our husbands or our wives, and thus learning how not to be, what's that word? Say it loud. That was not loud. Governed by this powerful aspect in our life. You see, we are talking about being yoked to Jesus, and yet many of us, no matter our age and stage, are more yoked to the sexual dimension of our life than we are to Jesus Christ. And so this is a practice that God is calling us back into. Now, before we get into the why of chastity, the when of chastity, and the if of chastity, we need to start all the way back at the beginning and answer some much larger, greater questions. What is sexuality according to the biblical worldview? Is sex okay? Is sex bad? What does God really think about it? And what does God expect? What does God say yes to? And what does God say no to? So you've got a Bible this morning. I'd love you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll begin all the way back in the beginning. You can navigate or turn there. Paper or virtual is fine. And right at the beginning, at the end of the seven days of creation, God steps in and he creates human beings. And right at the epicenter of the act of creation, sexuality is at the heartbeat of his creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 reads like this, Then God said, Let us make humanity, mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they will rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now we need to catch this right immediately. There is a direct connection between our sexuality, maleness, and femaleness in the image of God. Here's what one person wrote. The implication of this tremendous confession of scripture is that human sexuality is grounded in the image of God. And what he has helped us understand is relationship is at the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God. And thus the relationship between male and female is the human expression of our relationship with God. Our human sexuality, our maleness and our femaleness is not an accidental arrangement of the human species. It's not just a convenient way to keep our human race going. No, no, it's God's idea and it's at the center of true humanity. We exist as male and we exist as female in relationship. Our sexualness 
sense, our capacity to love and be loved is intimately related to the creation of being in God's image. And then he writes, what a high view of sexuality. He says, notice too that the biblical stress upon relationship helps us enlarge our view on sexuality. The problem with topless bars and all the garbage of pornography in our day is not that they emphasize sexuality too much, but they don't emphasize it enough. They totally eliminate relationship and thus they restrain sexuality to the narrow confines of genital sex. They make sex trivial. Mm, I was like, yes. They make sex trivial because they rip relationship right out of the act of sex. And so what we see is God's design is male and female, complementary roles in God's plan, and that is the full expression of sexuality. But there's more. As we travel from chapter 1 in Genesis into chapter 2, what we begin to see is that marriage and singleness are both reflections of God's very nature. So let me break it down this way. Marriage, as we're about to see in Genesis 2, is when a husband and wife come together under the presence of God and they solidify and begin and continue to maintain their marriage through the act of sex, mutually consenting sex. Now here's the power of this we need to recover in the church. We worship a God who is a trinity, right? Yes or no? Yes. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. One true living God, three persons sharing one essence. The closest thing we have in all of creation to the Trinity, the closest we get is when a husband and wife come together and have sex because you have two persons sharing one flesh, one ontology, one psyche, one essence. That moment, in that act, we see the closest thing to God himself down here. Did you know that? And so that is why this is so important to understand and not redefine because it is actually a reflection of God himself. Marriage is an expression of our Trinitarian God, and it's good. But how many gods do we worship? One or three? One. We're monotheists. As Jews say, we're monotheists mutated. We'll take it. Okay. But here's the point. Oh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. Singleness also is an expression of our God because our God is one. See, both marriage and singleness reflect the God we worship. You're saying, okay, well, John, why are you bringing all this up? Because both of these are divine options. Both of them are rooted in the creator's makeup. And here it is, ready? And none of them should be elevated or pitted against each other in the church. But this is exactly what has happened. In medieval times, in the medieval church, they thought that singleness was the great door to true spirituality, and now it's the reverse. The modern church is about the nuclear family, and programming and church growth much of the time is to family. And the pendulum swing both ways does not reflect the scriptures. Both singleness and marriage are equally good, God-given options to walk in this life, and this should never be pitted. No single person in our church should feel like a second-class citizen, ever, Because they are following Christ. And those who are married should never feel like a second class. See, don't you get it? Oh, church, these are both expressions of the God that has made us. God made male and female. God's ideal is in that. 
Singleness and marriage both reflect the God we know. So that leads us to the next question. Well, is sex okay, and is it good, or is it a result of the fall? Well, let me say this morning with authority, sex is good. Anyone want to say amen? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some people, yes, mm mm-hmm. All right, sex is good. It's okay. It's not a result of the fall. I was lecturing at Durham College in a world religions class, and this came up, and I said, well, my boss made it, so it's going to be okay. They had no clue what to do with me. It was great. Anyway, um, but sex is God's idea. It's his gift. It's his plan. Genesis 2.18, just flip the page or scroll. This is the unveiling of chapter 1. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And all the women are like, well, nothing's changed. True. And while he was sleeping, yeah, a lot more amens there. And while he was sleeping, if you're freaking out because you're in church, it's okay. It's, you can laugh here. And while he was sleeping, he, he, God took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Now that phrase in Hebrew, to make, means beauty. God made beauty out of Adam. It also means stability and durability. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, side note. Um, And so Eve is created. Now, what's profound about this as we get towards chastity and, and, and the whole sexual conversation is this. Eve is the first created being that comes from another living thing. Up to this point in the scriptures, everything has been created, what the scriptures say, ex nihilo, from nothing. But now she is the first being that comes from another. And so you have male and female, and notice they're both made in the image of God. Some religions teach women are never made in the image of God. We declare 100% male and female, both equal in God. Verse 22, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken of the man, and he brought her to the man. I love this, and here's why. If you've ever been to a wedding, raise your hand if you've been to a wedding before. Raise your hand. Okay, good. The tradition of walking a bride down here comes from right here. God the Father, who is a good father, who's never messed up, he's the right type of father. We've preached about this. He takes Eve for the first time and walks her towards Adam. This is where the tradition of walking a bride down to a groom by a good father comes from. And so he walks her down, and Adam is standing there, and he looks up, and he's like, hashtag epic creation. (laughs) He goes, oh my goodness. I've seen whales and dodo birds and I've seen the stars, but wow, what are you? Right? Eve, yeah. Eve turns around and says, well, you were sleeping, huh? Right. But what he cries out cannot be lost. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is not just saying you're close to me. This is the first wedding vows. This is where the tradition of putting rings on and wedding vows come from. He is declaring, I pledge my loyalty to you. And I will do it physically, emotionally, and sexually. Suddenly we're taken into the future, a future thought. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a future thought. You, you commit loyalty to each other. One flesh, in the Greek version of it, says, and the two shall become one psyche. And then it says this. I'm so glad this verse is in the Bible. Verse 25, and they were naked, and they felt no shame. Do you know how powerful this moment is? Like, this is the moment that every love song wants. This is the moment 
that every war is about. This is the moment why, why everything we long for is gone right here. Adam looks at Eve. Eve is looking at Adam, and they're having sex in the garden, and it's great. And not only are they having sex, they're in right creation, right relationship with each other, and they're in right relationship with creation. No pollution, no war, no wrong domination in any sense. So creation's good, humanity's good, and oh, by the way, God's in the garden, and so they know God, they know each other, and they know creation. See, this is what was lost, and this is what we so desperately want back. But at the heartbeat of Eden was good sex with no weirdness. It's why Satan knew he could undo everything in three directions. And so you have the beginning of our faith deeply, deeply, deeply affirming all of God's good creation. See, the fall didn't create sex, it perverted it. And from that point onward, God and his people, if you read the scriptures closely, have a very high view of sexuality. We're not afraid of sex at all. We're not prudes. We're all for it. But God also comes and he confronts this amazing gift when it goes sideways. If you don't believe that the Bible has a good view of sex, I'd encourage all of you devotionally to read Song of Solomon this week. No, really, read it. You will be shocked how beautifully God-honoring and erotic it is between a husband and a wife. Jesus had a high view of sex. Paul had a high view of sex. So that's not the conversation. But the conversation for us this morning is we live in a tension of a now and not yet in a fallen world. And though we as Christians have a high view of sex and we have a high view of sexuality and we celebrate it, we live in a very fallen, broken world where sex is misunderstood, sex is misused every single day of every single minute. And so many of us sitting here right now and online, we're getting uncomfortable in the very essence of who we are as I'm speaking because we know how broken, how broken, how broken it's become. And stuff has been done to us, and we've done stuff to others, and we've thought stuff, and it's just so screwed up. It was Richard Foster who wrote, Sex is like a great river that is rich and deep and good as long as it stays within its proper channels. The moment a river overflows its banks, it becomes destructive. And the moment that sex overflows its God-given banks, it becomes destructive too. And it's into that destruction I want to speak this morning. And I want to do it in humility, and I want to do it with grace and charity. But this is a call for real transformation because we love Jesus. So when are we called to practice this discipline called chastity? Well, as I look through the scriptures, there are probably five times. Some for a moment, some for a season, and some for a lifetime. So let's begin the journey this way. Every single person in this room who's a Christian and online... We are all called to practice the spiritual discipline of chastity when we are faced with sinning sexually. Chastity is done when we say no to sexual sin. Now, to be honest about this, we need to look into the face of Christ, into his holiness. We must look into his written word because we need to know what darkness is and what it's not. We have to call a spade a spade for only when we know what we must put off, what will, then will we know what to do with Christ. I was preaching this a little while ago, and let me give this, because Paul speaks into this. Let me give one historian's summary of the Roman cultural view of sex in his day, in Paul's day. He said, sexual attitudes in the Greco-Roman world are very similar to today's. Actually, it was more blatant, if you can believe it. Often a double standard existed, so wives were expected to have sexual relationships only with their husbands. 
Chastity by a lifestyle was a woman's value, but not practiced all the time. Men, however, how interesting, had various sexual outlets. As long as they did not commit adultery with another man's wife, you know, it's okay. The famous statement illustrates this laxity. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons. But wives, oh wives, they bear us legitimate children and become the faithful guardians of our household. Cicero talked about young men having affairs with courtesans. And if you just read history, there's no politics or anything behind this. Uh, Prostitution, homosexuality, both, by the way, in monogamous and non-monogamous experiences. Bisexuality were very common. Slaves were often sexually abused. And that actually, by the way, sounds a lot like Toronto. Sounds a lot like our world. This is the sexual. We live in the Greco-Roman world. We just got the internet. And what does Paul say into that? What does Paul say into that? What does the Holy Scripture say into that environment? Ephesians 5.3, but among you. Catch that. Among you. That is those who are followers of Jesus willingly. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. There must not be a whiff, a hint, a scent of sexual immorality. Well, John, what's sexual immorality? Because what does that word mean? It is a catch-all word. Now, before you get angry, you walk and leave, just please listen. I'm just going to give you a textbook definition of what this word means. The word in scripture means any sexual act outside of a heterosexual marriage. That's what that word means. Agree with it, disagree, get angry. I'm just telling you, that's what that word means. And he comes and he says, not a hint. He deeply ties us as he keeps walking through this later to the lordship of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from sexual immorality. There it is again. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. Wow. You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. As Christians, we fall hard here. We're married to Jesus and we're in covenant with him. And we want transformation and we're under his yoke and and we love him and he loves us. And, And so here's the thing, how we act and how we think with our bodies matters. Why? Because we're in a marriage relationship with Jesus and we don't get to rewrite the world, the rules. I'm not talking about struggling with sin this morning. If you're starting to get fuzzy in your head and shutting down, don't shut down. I'm not talking about temptation. I'm not talking about being inclined sexually one way or the other. I'm not talking, listen, struggle and orientation and temptation is never the first conversation we have as followers of Jesus. The first conversation we have about sexuality is we affirm it's good, and then second of all, we say the lordship of Jesus is welcomed. It is when in the church we justify and we affirm and we act out sexually against what the Bible is clear about and we think that God and us are just going to be okay. I'm talking about justifying sexual acts that Jesus our King who deeply cares for us has asked us not to do. You may never as a Christian justify a sexual act for yourself or someone else. You will know you've crossed into the line of compromise and you will have to start using the spiritual practice of chastity When you start saying, well, God would never deny my natural desires, or I don't have to explain myself to you or anyone else, 
Or God made me this way, or as long as we're consenting, it's okay. Or if I'm not hurting anyone, why does it matter? Well, that is the foundational thinking of our culture and totally makes sense if you're not a Christian. It makes sense. But for we who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are yoked to Jesus Christ, who are in love with Jesus Christ, who are willing slaves of Jesus Christ, we have to no longer have that understanding because that is split-level thinking. That is syncretism. That is saying that what we experience, want, or desire, no matter how deep, has more authority than Jesus in the Scriptures. For us, sexuality, though good and fantastic, is a matter of worship. It is a matter of truth. It's a matter of authority, it's a matter of freedom, it's a matter of humility. The world can say we can do what we want, when we want, how we want, but as followers of Jesus, our first question is, Jesus, what do you want? Chastity, when we are being tempted sexually, and that's all of us, in any way that we know God says no to, is a joyful calling. Chastity also, for some of us, is how we enter into the sufferings of Jesus Christ, and we are crucifying our natural desires and giving up what we want and desire. It's how we say yes to Jesus, and we're all called into it. If you're engaged and you're sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend, repent. It's not right. We don't have a right to do anything we want because we said Jesus was Savior and what? Lord. Second, the practice of chastity is a discipline given or chosen for some for life. I've got a Bible turned to Matthew 19. This is a part of Scripture that's rarely preached and so powerful. Some religious leaders were arguing with Jesus. That's not new. And they were talking about divorce and remarriage, which we're not going to deal with today. But what he does is so interesting. In in, in Matthew 19, 4, he says, Have you not read that that at the beginning the Creator made male and female? And And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother. They will be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no person separate. If you've ever heard that someone say Jesus did not have a really strong view on marriage, yes, he did. It's right here. He affirms what his father declared. But interestingly, down in verse 11 and 12, this is where it gets really good for some of us. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Now, some of you are going, I cannot believe this. Sex, Song of Solomon, and eunuchs. Every guy wants to cup himself. Like, he's just like, really? A eunuch is someone who's had their testicles cut off. Now he's dawning on some other people. Oh, okay. Jesus is very blunt about this. There's three ways people become eunuchs. Number one, some of us are born like that because of, it's just, we live in a fallen world. We're born with all sorts of problems, and that's one. Back in ancient times, if you had access to a royal family as a man, uh, they would remove your testicles because they would never ever want you to have sexual relationships and contaminate the line with an illegitimate child. But this little thing here at the end, oh, how challenging and needed this is in the church. And yet some, Jesus says, become eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. They make the decision that the kingdom of God is even more significant than their sexual wants and desires and needs. They elevate the kingdom, the reign and rule of God. Now, this works out in two ways. 
First of all, some people choose to be single and chaste for the rest of their life because they just want to serve God. They're never going to get married. They, even, they just want to do it. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.32. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord, body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And Paul basically says, would you be willing to consider singleness and practice this discipline for much of your life, if not your whole life, for the sake of the kingdom of God? Would you become a eunuch for the kingdom of God? And this is what Paul encourages. He doesn't say you have to do it. He invites us into it. I love what Michael Green, the famous Anglican person, wrote. Could I be equally useful to the Lord if married? Or would that curtail my usefulness to him? The quantity of time available for Christian involvement may be reduced once married or enhanced. But here's the question. But I have no right as a Christian, he writes, to marry unless I honestly face the question of the impact my marriage will have on Christian life and service. In other words, every person who's a Christian before they get married should stop and ask, Lord, do you want me to be single? How many of you did that before you got married? He says, I'm inviting some of you, not all of you, it's not command, but some of you will give so much of your time and your energy, and you're invited into this because you will give more time and money and energy and life into the kingdom of God. The second form of this is some are called into celibacy, to follow Jesus and live under his lordship and give up our sexual wants, rights, and desires. We choose the kingdom of God over our sexual wants. One person powerfully wrote that the ethic of Jesus is so offensive because it's not about the actualization of perceived rights, but a willingness of disciples to follow the example of Jesus and freely laying aside rights for the sake of higher good. Jesus himself noted that certain people would willingly set aside, not their sexuality, but sex acts for the sake of the kingdom of God. How many people want to say the word transformation quick now? Chastity is a discipline we're all called into No more single, single again or married when we know we're about to sin sexually. Chastity actually becomes a calling. Some of us choose it. We want to be single and not just because we can't get married. No, no, we we want to do it because we feel that we want to do this for Christ. And it's a willing thing. It's not duty. Some of us are called into this because our wants and desires go counterintuitive to the kingdom of God. And so we sacrifice the very essence of who we are in the sense of we say no to sex acts. And we say, I want to become a eunuch for the kingdom of God. There's more. Chastity is given to all of us for seasons. So let me summarize these two. For you who are single or single again, you may be teenagers or young adults, or maybe you've been married and you're now a widow, you've been divorced. If you are in that place and space, you are called into this practice. Maybe this will give some of you encouragement, especially as young adults and teenagers are like, wow, I'm at least practicing one spiritual practice. Yes, you are. Go team. And if you're not, we, anyway, okay, different conversation. But when we are in an age and stage or in a place where we are not married, And it's not chosen singleness, it's just that space. We are called to practice this. We are called, it says in 2 Timothy, flee. Flee youthful, flee youthful desires or temptations. Pursue righteousness. 
So we are practicing and called into this. And by the way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this isn't pulling up your bootstraps and saying, no, no, ask for God's help to willingly worship him this way. But also some of you, all of us who are married this morning, you also are called into this. See, some of you have been married and gone, this is great. This is everyone else's conversation. I'm great. No. There's one last thing I need to preach on. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, and by the way, can everyone put their phones down? Can everyone look up? Don't get disconnected. Critical moment. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body but yields it to his wife. Here's what Paul says. Since sexual immorality is always where we're going to end up going, if you are married and things are well, you should regularly be involved in having a good, healthy sex life. Why? It is a way you cement your relationship, you love each other, you serve each other, and oh, by the way, this is how you fight temptation. You never thought about this, but sex is spiritual warfare, everybody. This is how we love and honor. Now, I'm not talking about dysfunction. If you need help and counseling, go get it. I'm not saying that everything's easy, but every person in here who married understands something, but sometimes we forget it. Jesus owns our body and our spouse owns our body. We don't own our bodies. Do you see how rights are disappearing all over the place? You can't use sex as a weapon in your marriage. You can't say no without a real understanding of what's going on, unless there's a real crisis or some counseling. Listen, sex is what keeps us together. Sex is what allows us to walk with each other. And this is a good way to fight temptation because if we are not involved in this on a regular basis, guess what happens? We end up going to other places we're not allowed to go. Paul says it even stronger. He says, verse 5, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. Do you see that? Don't deprive each other. In other words, the word deprive in Greek is don't steal. Don't steal sex from each other in a marriage context, except by mutual consent. Both parties have to agree. Now, we all know, let's be really honest in this room, okay? We all know that sex sometimes is great and sometimes sex is work and it's service. Again, some teenagers are here going, I don't believe you. Anyone married want to say amen? Uh huh, look at that, mm, amen. That's awesome. Everyone in the podcast, I can't believe that church. Yeah, true, right? <laughs> It's like I love Raymond. Anyways, you know, if you remember those episodes. Like, this is so true. Sex is wonderful and sex is good. And the longer you do it, the better you get at it. That's all true. But sometimes we're called to serve each other. And there's one time that we're not supposed to be involved in this rhythm together. It's when we choose mutually together, not forced, so we can do other spiritual practices. And actually, what's wild about this is actually this is a form of fasting. That we voluntarily give up a normal rhythm for the sake of spiritual intense practices. But then what does it say here? You get back together quick. Run to the bed because you're going to be tempted soon. So get going. Chastity is a great gift to the church. 
Because chastity does not dumb down sexuality. Chastity does not say that sex is bad or evil or gross. It is affirmed, and I affirm it, and the church affirms it. And here's the point. Chastity is given to us as a gift, so we do not let the banks of our great sexual urges and practices that God has given us overflow his banks. And so we are called to say no at any time where the scriptures say no. That's the spiritual discipline. Some of us willingly do it because we want to give more time to the kingdom. Some of us give up very significant parts of us for the sake of the kingdom. Some of us are in that practice right now, but you've never viewed it as worship. Say, Lord, I worship you as a single person. I want to get married, but today in my singleness, I choose to worship you by practicing this discipline. And all of us as married couples, if you're married, have to get serious about what we just saw, that we have to work on sexual dysfunction. If it's happening, let's get counseling and work it out with each other. But if it's okay, we need to be in the regular practice of serving each other sexually and also then disciplining ourselves together and saying, let's pray for a week or a day or, or, or a few weeks so we can do, do these other spiritual activities and then let's come back together. You say, John, that was a lot, I know. But I want to encourage you as a church. We are not playing church in this church. We are here because we are members of the kingdom of God. The reign and rule of God. And as the band comes up, let me just say this. We are praying, again, for renewal and revival and awakening. So everyone listen closely. We're saying, I want to love Jesus and know him more. I want him to become more significant than anything else. Personal renewal. We're asking for the Holy Spirit to lighten on our whole church for a season where the love of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus and the love of God spreads through us and spreads through our relationships. And we're praying for an awakening. Well, let me tell you, part of the prayer that we're really uttering is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that, what we're really asking is, Lord Jesus, how we want your forgiveness, how we want your healing, how we want your love, but we want you to invade our money practices. We want you to invade how we treat other people, and we want you to invade our sexuality. Why? Because there's no one more worthy than giving up these things to Jesus. No one more worthy than you. It's what David said, I will not worship God unless it costs me greatly. And this is a call for holiness in this church, not out of duty, but out of love for Christ. So why don't we take a moment to pray, and then the song we sing, sing it through the lens of the kingdom. Lord, there is so much going on in this room and online. Anger, sadness, neutrality, defense. It's okay, because you're good and you're loving. So Holy Spirit, come and translate what your word has said to each individual. But here's my prayer. Number one, Lord, for us among us this morning who have really actually been sinning. We have been willingly sinning sexually. Forgive us. Help us to now willingly start practicing this. For some of us, Lord, who have been considering being single for the sake of the kingdom of God, would you begin to affirm that for a season or a lifetime? For others of us who are faced with the significant decision of giving up everything we want for the kingdom of God. Give us courage and love for Jesus that does not make sense. For my single friends here this morning who want to be married, I pray that you would allow them to be faithful in their signalness online and offline and that they would worship you, Jesus Christ, by saying, not now. 
And I pray for us as married couples. Oh Lord, spare our marriages. Spare them. And we would ask, Lord, and I do pray this without shame. Oh God, may your spirit come so heavy in this church that the sexual side of our relationships are pure and honest. For those who need healing in this church sexually, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would literally heal people so they could actually experience intimacy again in their marriages. But also I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd begin to convict married couples to set sex apart for a period to begin to pray. Oh Lord, we pray, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be on, on earth in our money, on earth in our relationships, and on earth in our sexuality as it is in heaven. Oh Jesus, send your spirit so we love you, love you, and everything is put in its right place. Glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.